0: Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're wrapping up China's two sessions, the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference and the National People's Congress, which ran from the 4th and 5th of March, respectively, through to this past Sunday. As well as economic targets and macro policy setting, this year's editions also involved the most extensive government reshuffle in a decade or more. So, what are some of the key takeaways and learnings from the past week? And what do we need to keep a lookout for in the weeks and indeed months ahead? Two top talents from UBS are here to give us their take on the headlines. We start with Banu Baveja, Chief Strategist in the UBS CIO. For context, Banu and I spoke on March the 10th, going into the MPC's concluding weekend. Banu, welcome. Good to chat with you again on the show. Let's start with your reaction to the MPC this past week. The meetings have been broadly in line with expectations. I mean, is that, is that the headline? This has kind of gone as you guys had predicted, more or less.
1: Uh, they have gone more or less as predicted. There's some quarters of the market that are slightly disappointed um, that China's growth target is only 5%. We aren't one of them. Uh, we, we are actually looking for a slightly higher number for the course of this year. And and that's precisely the point that many times in the past, China has overshot its, um, its growth target. So I think when it says that it wants 5%, it is probably signaling to its local population that that's the basic minimum growth that it would go with. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it would, it won't surpass that. It has done that many times in the past, and I think it will do again.
0: Yes, I guess the point being that, you know, there's probable upside, therefore, if these targets are more attainable, it seems like pragmatism. In in terms of the more broader picture, uh, Banu, you know, no real big surprises in terms of of policy. But to a degree, the caveat would be we sort of need to wait and see a little bit and look at the new leadership team that's being assembled and see what they have to say in the the days and weeks ahead.
1: The overarching message from Chinese policymakers has been pretty consistent, right? So common prosperity is... The broad theme under which most economic policy is going to be uh, formed, framed, and and, uh, and conducted. So, that's absolutely true. And in, in my mind, the way I think about common prosperity is, it marks a, it does mark a shift from what China has been doing since 1978. If their objective function has been to maximize GDP or maximize growth. And then this focus on common, common prosperity is not a new term. It has been around since you know the late 1940s and, and really was brought to the fore in 2012 when Xi Jinping came to power. And then now really is being implemented as sort of the central pillar of economic policy. So this marks a move from maximizing GDP to minimizing the volatility of GDP, which is a completely different objective function. Because if you're minimizing the volatility of GDP, then you are talking about minimizing the cause of GDP volatility or growth volatility, which is investment, particularly housing investment. And hence, houses are for living. We're not looking for any bubbles. And that's great for the medium term, but it does mean there is short-term economic pain in that you don't get 8% growth or 6% growth. You get close to 5% growth. And it also has important implications for China's own equity markets. But the quarter that it has most implications for, the, the deepest implications for is the rest of the world. Because this marks a process in which China becomes less dependent on global imports. So. European growth or European earnings, Australian growth, Australian earnings, similarly South Africa, Indonesia, all of these countries will benefit less than they used to from a China growth rebound. And that's the context in which not to just look at this cyclical rebound, but also Chinese growth in the coming years.
0: Uh, well, that's interesting, and I was going to ask you specifically about the impact for EMEA and to well to a lesser extent, I suppose, the US. Our audience is very international. We're in this interconnected world still, despite some of the challenges of the last couple of years. Can we dig a little deeper into that impact? How, how does that? What are the nuts and bolts of that process that you've already alluded to in your last remarks, Bonnie?
1: The rest of the world is levered to China investment, not to China, not to China consumption, right? So when we say Chinese growth is really good for global growth, which it is, or it has been, what we're really saying is that Chinese investment is really good for global growth because Chinese consumption is very Chinese. The import propensity of consumption in China is de minimis, right? Only 6% of consumption is imported, but the vast majority, more than 40% of Chinese investment requires imports from abroad so if investment is slowing down and consumption is picking up that rebalancing is positive for china and is very much in line with common prosperity but that rebalancing is not great for the rest of the world because the rest of the world as i said is levered to investment if we dig deeper particularly housing investment is one of the most import thirsty sectors within china and that's exactly where we are seeing slowdowns right both in terms of land space sold but also in terms of new starts and completions and and construction overall, we're looking for a slowdown. And for instance, I mean, just to give you a sense of how much China has slowed down in its in its property market in terms of sales. In 2021, China sold about 1.55 billion square meters of land across floor area. In 2022, that number came down to about 1.1 billion. And we think the medium-term trend is going to be something close to 950 million. Right, Even this year, despite the fact that we are looking for 5% growth, so a considerable rebound from last year, we think land sales or uh, gross floor value sold is actually going to be lower at about 1.05 billion. So we're looking for a slow trend lower in Chinese property sales again because there has been very strong property market for the better part of the last 15 years so it is rational for chinese policy to slow it down it's rational but it's not painless and certainly not for the rest of the world and that means lesser demand for commodities particularly iron ore to a lesser degree perhaps copper and and certainly steel it also means lesser demand for uh, cap goods um, and white goods such as autos from the rest of the world so industrials, autos, commodities, all of them get impacted.
0: Yeah, well, let's look a little bit at uh, a a sector perspective from you. I know, I guess there are opportunities here if we think about companies that are exposed to the ongoing consumption rebound, potentially to longer term policy based initiatives. Is that an interesting place to to start with a, a look at some sector specifics?
1: so within china that's certainly the case right because uh, china is moving towards uh, automation china needs in its infrastructure push much further electrification and this is these are some sectors where companies within china and also companies outside china uh, european industrials can benefit so if you're selling excavators we may benefit less than if you're selling automation equipment to China, if you're thinking about sort of the relative sales of companies, of industrials within Europe. But decarbonization, renewables, is one sector within China which is growing very, very quickly. Again, I said to you earlier that auto demand from the rest of the world is going to be slowing. And that's largely because that's not because Chinese auto demand itself is going to diminish, and China is going to become a less important market. China is the largest auto market in the planet. and Last year as well, they sold about 22 million units. But the, the pace at which EVs are replacing internal combustion engines is phenomenal. And and China's sort of the world leader in, in that. And most of EV demand in China is sated by China. And that's the point I'm making that this Chinese growth is not only a little more balanced between consumption and investment, but because it is more balanced between consumption and investment, it has become more Chinese and less global. So the EPS beta for Europe or Australia or the rest of the world, to one unit of Chinese growth declines, the earnings beta, the growth beta declines. And so that's why it's consequential for the rest of the world, but within sectors, renewables and decarbonization is the biggest push within China, followed perhaps by by automation, AI, electrification.
0: Bunny, maybe just finally and briefly, if we look ahead now, what should we be looking out for? Is it you know more information, more data on the pace of recovery as that comes through? Do we need to look at other, I don't know, competition scenarios? Is it about the composition of the administration as that changes? I don't know, other factors, sales and inventory. What are the things we need to look out for, uh, which will be interesting markers as we look uh, through to the next couple of quarters?
1: Through the next couple of quarters is not a very long time horizon through through this time, I would argue that you really need to look at how quickly. Do sales for things like property bottom up right, so we are looking for a modest sequential rebound in in property this year, but there's a possibility that. As confidence comes back and it really hasn't so far right, so we are we are speaking about this on the 10th of March confidence of retail within China is not very high at this point, although the data has just about begun to improve. But this can change. Within a month, within three months, this can change as data begins to pick up, particularly TSF, that's total social financing, so credit data, as that begins to pick up as we continue to see PMIs doing well. But also, most importantly, if we see some signs of stability, and maybe even you know, in the very short term, possible upward surprises in sales, that will lend itself very positively to the equity market, to retail confidence. And even if geopolitical risks mean that global investors don't come into China in the same size as they used to, retail investors within China, who have also been quite shy, can come in, right? For that you need, again, TSF data, PMI data, but very importantly, property sales stabilizing. So there is a decent chance that for a little while, three months, six months, it does feel like this is a very strong rebound in China because policymakers are also incentivizing stronger growth in the very near term, more long-term six to 12 months and beyond. I, I think what we will need to look at is at what point does China once again, remind us that houses are for living and once again, really instates common prosperity as the central tenet of economic policy and basically prevents any form of excess, whether in the property market or in the, equity market. So I think we are still some distance from that. So right now is the time to be thinking about a strong cyclical rebound in China. And again, it will sit, you know, very differently to history in that usually China has simply led the rebound in the rest of the world. At this time, China is going to be seeing higher earnings growth and higher margins growth precisely at the time where the West is going to be seeing lower earnings growth and lower margins growth, right? Because the cycle has become so desynchronized because of China's lockdowns. It hasn't been in the past, but to Today, the cycle is completely desynchronized. So Chinese equities could stand out relative to European equities and US equities over the next three to six months. So those are the data points I'd be watching. Credit growth, TSF, the Delta in PMI and land sales.
0: The excellent Banu Baveja there, talking to us just as the two sessions were heading into their final days. Before we wrap this show, let's also check in with another of our friends and a previous guest on this theme on this show before. Yifan Hu is APAC Regional CIO and Head of APAC Macroeconomics in UBS Wealth Management. I should add here that we spoke to Yifan this past Thursday in the midst of the sessions. Well, Ivan, Hu, great to chat to you once again. Let's get your take on what we saw and heard out of the MPC. It's always interesting, Agnet, to look at what happens, whether that's the optics of the event, almost, you know, who's who's sitting where. But just from a from a sort of macro standpoint, give us your observations of what we've seen this past week.
2: Okay, so for the two sessions, and we know started on March 4th and will last until March 13th. So I think that, like, apart from economic targets and the macroeconomic policy setting, this year's meeting will also involve the most, uh, ex, uh, like, uh, the expensive government reshuffle in a decade. So on that, uh, on the first day of the MPC, normally it's like uh, the premiums report. So it will deliver, like, the government work report will deliver, like, a KPI of the government this year. So we want to highlight and summarize like uh what's our like uh for the government targets this year. So uh if we started for the key economic targets, I think the most important always on the spotlight is for the GDP growth target. So the government set target at the, around the 5%. So last year, the target set is at 5.5%. But the actual is uh, 3%. So this year, the target actually sets quite modest at the, around the 5%. So largely in line with the market expectation, but a little bit like, uh, I think it's relatively conservative, like uh, versus the market expectation. So we think that actually the this target could be reached. Uh, we actually expect around 5.5% of the GDP growth will so be driven by the recovering consumption and the resilience like investment. Besides for the GDP growth target, and also the government have the deficit target, it's around the 3%. So last year, the, the target is 2.8%. So it's a little bit expansionary this year. And we also have very important as the special local government bond, like the uh, quotas. So that's actually it's the backbone of the infrastructure in China. So this year, actually, it's set a record high of the 3.3 trillion RMB. So it's um, a little bit higher than the last year's 3.65 trillion. So we think that's like showing the government's determination in boosting uh, infrastructure, like uh, in like, uh, various fields, like including traditional infrastructure, smart cities, and long-term manufacturing.
0: On the sort of policy side, it was noticeably brief, wasn't it, in terms of the policy outlook? I guess there's a big, there's some big personnel changes, a new leadership team coming in. Do you think that this sort of lack of any policy surprises reflects the fact that we're likely to wait and see what happens once the new faces have their feet under the table, if you like? And given that caveat, what do you think we might see, though, in the weeks and indeed months ahead in policy terms?
2: I think for the policy side, I think that we will see uh, because like uh, uh, we still will have this kind of a medium press, uh, like uh, for example, by the premium Li Qiang. So we expect there's uh, maybe more like a detailed policy will be released at that time. And also normally after two sessions and uh, ministers will announce like uh, uh, their like a plan for the new year. So that, that will be a lot of details there. So since this year we have some like new ministers and also like it's also for the like the structure reshuffling. So I guess like maybe the details announcement will be a little bit later comparing with like the previous
0: years. Ethan Hu bringing us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club too by subscribing to Monocle Magazine. You can also follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. And discover more and find out how UBS can help you by heading to ubs.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.